Good morning. Glad you are here today with us online or at the campuses. Let's go ahead and turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. Let's turn to our Lord. Father God, we thank you for this day. This is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we thank you that we can gather as believers, that we can study your inspired, inerrant word. Father, we don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And so we ask that you would impart your truth to us, that you would encourage us and challenge us, transform us by biblical truths. And Father, as we talk about how we ought to interact one with another, Give us insights into not only the text, but how we are measuring up to the text and what is our next step in caring for each other. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Probably a fair number of you have read the book Moby Dick. If you've read Moby Dick, you remember that it is about a seafaring captain of a whaling ship, and his name is Ahab. And Ahab, in his voyages with his crew, came across a monster, a white whale that they call Moby Dick. And in that first encounter, somehow Ahab loses his leg to the white whale. And after recovery, he sees with anger. He has tunnel vision. His goal is revenge. His goal is vengeance. Nothing else matters in his life. He wants to get that whale. And you remember there's some prose in the book. It goes like this. I know that he, Ahab, was never very jolly. And I know that on the passage home, He was a little out of his mind for an entire spell. I know, too, that ever since he lost that lag on his last voyage by that accursed whale, he has been a kind of moody, desperate moody, a savage moody. And so it is that the captain imperils the crew, imperils the ship. He no longer is interested in just finding other whales. He's no longer interested in just doing his job. He has now had that tunnel vision, that anger, that seething, that hatred. His focus is all on Moby Dick. To find that whale, to get that whale, to kill that whale. And in the midst of this, the crew realizes that their lives are in jeopardy. That Ahab is imperiling them. But they're afraid of the captain, all except his first mate, Starbucks, who says to him, Oh, Ahab, not too late is it even now, the third day to desist. See, Moby Dick seeks you not. It is you, you who seek him. But Starbucks is ignored. And Ahab pursues that tunnel vision. 
ignoring reason, ignoring his job, focused on vengeance, focused on revenge, focused on hatred. And the crew save one is lost. The ship is lost. Ahab is lost. He has been blinded, which ends in death and destruction. I trust you haven't been there. That you haven't had tunnel vision, hating someone, seething over someone, slandering someone, desiring to destroy someone. I pray that that has never happened in your life. And if it has, today is a day to bring that account before the Lord, to ask His Spirit to give you an attitude of love and graciousness, forgiveness, mercy. And to take the hatred and the bitterness away, no matter what the wrong is, it's eating you, it's destroying you, as it destroyed Ahab. In contrast to Moby Dick, I think of a pastor, it's during the Revolutionary War, just prior to it. His name is Pastor Peter Miller. He lives in Ephrata, which is in Pennsylvania. And Pastor Miller has an antagonist. This antagonist hates him. The antagonist wants to destroy him, to end him. That antagonist is named Michael Whitman. And Michael Whitman never loses the opportunity to mock the good pastor, to slander the good pastor, to show hatred to the good pastor. But Michael Whitman ends up in trouble. He actually ends up being arrested by General Washington, George Washington. He is found guilty, though it's unlikely that he was guilty. He was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. When the good pastor, Pastor Peter Miller, learns that the man who has slandered him hates him, does evil towards him, has been arrested 70 miles away. He walks in that direction. 70 miles each way. Pastor Peter Miller comes and he says to General George Washington, of whom he has a relationship, he says, Michael Whitman is not guilty. He's innocent. You need to let him go. And General Washington says, look, Look, pastor, look, we're friends. But I cannot let this man go. I cannot let your friend free. To which pastor said, my friend, you've got to be kidding me. Michael Whitman is my worst enemy. And that arrests General Washington in his tracks. He says, your worst enemy? You have traveled 70 miles on foot each way to defend your worst enemy? That changes things. Obviously, you know things I don't know. He must not be guilty. And Michael Whitman is set free. And Pastor and Michael Whitman head back to Ephrata, formerly hated and now as friends. And I wonder which is it for most of us. I trust that most of you are like Pastor Peter Miller. 
grace, mercy, forgiveness, love, kindness, charity. I trust that few here today are like Ahab with tunnel vision, hating somebody, maybe even a fellow Christ follower, having bitterness in one's heart, never losing the opportunity to slander the object of one's derision, vitriol, and hatred. I pray, I trust, that most of you, I observe that most of you, are like Pastor Peter Miller. May your tribe increase. May we not be like Ahab, who has tunnel vision, hatred, vitriol, towards the object of his anger. John writes about this. I want to read from 1 John chapter 3. Listen to verses 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, that's Abel. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life through faith in Christ because we love the brothers. That's the evidence that we belong to Christ. We love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I think we could almost summarize this passage by something that John wrote in the gospel bearing his name. You remember in John 13, 34 and 35, we read this. A new commandment I give to you. And the new commandment is an old commandment. It's all the way back in Leviticus to love one another. So the new doesn't mean brand new. It means intensified new. This is an intensified commandment that God gives to his people. An intensified commandment I give to you that you love one another Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus tells us that one of the evidences that you and I have passed from death, being alienated from God because of our sin, to life through faith in Jesus Christ, one of the evidences of that is that you and I have love for one another. And if we are on trial to determine if we belong to the Lord, one of the evidences that the jury would look for is how we treat fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. And I trust for so many of you, you would do well Not like Ahab, you would do like Pastor Peter Miller. You would show kindness, you would show grace, you would show love, not slander, not hatred, but kindness 
to one another. That's how faithful followers of Jesus ought to be. But in verse 12, John gives us two categories. Now, I, I love the fact that John always gives us two categories because he's really black and white. Now, I'm kind of gray. I would like a few more categories, but he gives us two categories, and that's easy to measure my life against. He says you can be like Cain or you can be like Abel. Now, some of us would say, well, why don't we be Kale? Kind of in between Cain and Abel. We'll be Kales. No, you got to be like Cain or you got to be like Abel. Now, you recognize both of them from Genesis chapter 4. These are the offspring of Adam and Eve. And you remember that Cain is a farmer and Abel is a rancher. Cain plants and harvests. Abel has livestock. And at the end of the season, when they are benefiting from what their hard work has produced, they give their first fruits to the Lord. And you remember that Cain, because he's a farmer, brings a grain offering. And Abel, because he's a rancher, he brings a bloody offering. He brings an animal sacrifice. And you remember that God rejects Cain's offering and he embraces Abel's offering. Now some, I think quite incorrectly, have said, well, God rejects Cain's offering because it's grain. He accepts Abel's offering because it's a blood sacrifice. But that's to misunderstand the Levitical system that will soon be put into place. And in the Levitical system, there are grain offerings, there are bloody offerings, there are wine offerings, there's a variety of all of which in certain situations are acceptable to the Lord. The issue is not that one brings a grain offering and one brings an animal sacrifice. That's not the issue. The issue is one is righteous and one is unrighteous. One gives as an act of worship, one gives as an act of obligation. And so... God rejects Cain's offering, accepts Abel's offering. Cain sees this and he sees in his heart. He becomes angry. He has tunnel vision. And God warns Cain, hey, get over it. If you don't, something very detrimental will happen. You need to lower the anger, lower the bitterness, lower the slander, lower the hatred. Turn to me. But we know what happens. He doesn't. And Cain murders Abel. Now the point of the illustration in today's text is this. We can bring the Lord an offering that is acceptable or not acceptable based upon the content of our heart, whether we love or whether we hate. Now the issue here is not how big the offering is. We are to give the Lord an acceptable offering of the first fruits of what God has entrusted to us. That's true, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is the content of one's heart. When Abel offered a sacrifice to God, it was, it was a savory, sweet offering because his heart was focused on the Lord. Because he was 
filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for who God is and all that he's done. It appears that Cain does it out of obligation, even in the midst of anger. And God rejects the offering. It's not the size here. It's not even the content. We learn this lesson, don't we, in Luke 21, 1-4, where we have a, a story, an account. We call it the widow's might from a Latin word for might, which means a little thing. In the Greek text, it's lepta. It means about one-eighth of one penny. This widow has two of them. She gives about one quarter of one penny. And Jesus is elated because she's not only given sacrificially, but she's given from her heart. Cain doesn't. He doesn't give from his heart. In fact, in the midst of an act of worship, anger, hatred, vitriol spews from him. Now we can say, how is that possible? How is it possible in the midst of an act of worship that one can be stirred to anger and one can be stirred to slander and one can be stirred to vengeance? It doesn't seem possible, yet we know it is. Maybe it's whoever is speaking says something, maybe not even biblical, but just as a statement or an illustration, and it rubs us the wrong way, and, and we're so little in character that we use it to slander someone over and over again. Or maybe, maybe it's a song. It's not our favorite song. Or it's an instrument that just kind of screeches in our ears. Or it's the mere sight of someone on the platform and it rubs us the wrong way. And in the midst of worship, we have anger and vitriol boiling up within us. And John says that should not be for a Christ follower. We have passed from death to life. The death of the old nature Life with Jesus Christ. And because of that, our spirit, our character is molded. So that rather than harboring anger and bitterness and slander and vengeance, we let things go. We hand them over to the Lord. And we offer mercy and grace and forgiveness. Or in the summary of verse 11, we show love to one another. Is this true in your life? Is it true in my life? Are we growing in love for one another because of how much the Lord has loved us? I trust that that's true. And we're not like the world that hates. That's verse 12. John says, in contrast to how we ought to love one another, the world will hate us. The word world here is cosmos. It's used 21 times in the five chapters of 1 John. Now we have five books from John, right? We have the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And unlike most of the New Testament authors, when John uses the word cosmos, world, he uses it in a rather pejorative sense. The world is made up of individuals who ignore salvation by faith in Christ alone. They teach a foreign gospel. The world 
is made up of individuals who ignore the morals and ethics of God. The world is the proto-Gnostic infiltrators that have come into the church that John's warning against. You remember these incipient or proto-Gnostics. They taught that salvation is by good works, not by saving faith in Jesus. They taught that only the soul is everlasting, but the body is not. So whatever you do with the body, it doesn't matter. Just live the way you want. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and only your soul will ever go into eternity. Biblical rubbish. That's the world to John. And John says, the world's going to hate us. Sometimes we're surprised by this, aren't we? The world hates us and we act surprised. How can the world hate us? Well, Jesus told us it was going to be so. And the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more the world is going to hate us. They'll hate the gospel message that salvation is only uniquely in Jesus Christ. They'll hate his morals. They'll hate his values. They'll hate his word. They'll hate us. And that's part of John's point. If the world hates us and we've already got an enemy, why would we hate one another? Why would we not band together as a band of brothers, a band of sisters, supporting one another? Even if we're a little annoyed from time to time, we ought to express love for one another because we actually have an enemy, not of our own doing, that is going to hate us. This is interesting, by the way. Do you notice how many verses John gives us about the world? One. How many verses does he give us about loving one another? Actually, there's four sections in this small epistle of five chapters. There's a section in chapter two, two sections in chapter three, and a section in chapter four. He's all over the topic of loving one another. And I think the balance is we got one verse, not of us hating the world, not of us denigrating the government, not of us spewing vitriol over policies we disagree with. One verse of the world hating us. And then back to his topic. This is how the world will know we belong to Jesus. This is how we will win over the world. That you and I love one another. And I've got to step back and ask, is that balance the same balance that is in my life? Is it the balance in yours? I remember a number of years ago reading about William Booth. Now you remember William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, which when he founded it was a thoroughly, rigorously gospel-centered organization. And William Booth understood that how the world knows that we are believers is how we love one another and even how we love the world. And so in one of his communications to all of the other officers of the Salvation Army, he sent a message. It only had one word, and the word was this, others. Others. That was what he wanted to communicate. 
If we want to reach the world, we need to think of others. The brethren, the sisters, even the unbelievers, we need to think of others. We need to show love towards others. This was well illustrated on May 29th, 1914, on a ship called the Empress of Ireland. Like the Titanic, the Empress of Ireland went down. And the Empress of Ireland did not have enough safety belts for all of the crew and all of the passengers. And when the 130 Salvation Army officers realized that there weren't enough life belts for the crew and the passengers to a man, to a woman, they took their belt off and insisted that others have the belt. And 109 of the 130 perished. What were they doing? They were demonstrating the love of Christ to others. And that's what John calls for. What does he say in verse 16 of our text? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How does the world know that we belong to the Lord? By the way you and I love one another. Now the word love often in this text is agape. And we could do a study on agape with great, great benefit. Agape love is other-centered love. Agape love might have an emotional side. Often it does, but it's driven by commitment. In fact, agape love can be extended even to those we don't like. You don't have to like someone to agape love them. So we could have great benefit by studying this word agape. But that's not the direction John goes. He says, how are we to love one another? The way Christ loved us. Jesus Christ left the glories and the splendor of heaven. Jesus Christ took on human flesh. He left the area where there's the beck and call. He could call upon legions of angels to do anything that he desired. He left it all, took on human flesh, never sinned, willingly went to the cross at the bidding of his Father and took on our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake. He, Jesus, who knew no sin, he never sinned, became sin for us. That doesn't mean he sinned. It doesn't mean that at all. It means he took our sin upon himself. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. How are we ought to live? What is the model of other? What is the model of a pastor, Peter Miller? What is the model of Christ? To sacrifice self on behalf of others, to show love. I love the way John puts it. In verses 17 and 18, this is very tangible. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, his sister, a Christ follower in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This doesn't mean that we are to provide for those who could provide for themselves, but are lazy and do not. 
Paul interacted with some people like that in Thessalonica. And so he wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 11. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy, busy bodies. I remember hearing of a person in a church that had been offered a, a job. It was a part-time job, maybe not the greatest job, but this person turned it down, and then a week later, he asked for benevolent help from the church to meet his needs. And that's a gentle but firm no. No. You had the opportunity to provide for yourself, but you wouldn't, you didn't. So we will save the resources for somebody who's hardworking but comes up short to meet their needs. So we have a benevolent fund at Highland, thanks to you. In the last 12 months, $131,000 has been given to the Benevolent Fund because of you. Thank you. In fact, uh, of the dollars that come into Highland, about 22 to 25% of all of them go out in missions locally and globally because of you. We're about to help out several ethnic church plants in Wisconsin because of you. We're going to build a seminary in Haiti where we have been training Haitian pastors for several years. We're going to build, buy a piece of property, build a seminary with the dollars that you have graciously given. It's because of you. Thank you. Some of you know somebody in a hospital and you call or you send a text message. You visit a shut-in. You bring meals. You send cards. You see individuals in need and, and you minister to them. You pray for them diligently. Thank you. That's what the body of Christ is about. And John says, we ought to show love as we have been recipients of love, show love to one another and show love even outside the church because this is how the world is going to know that we belong to him. A telltale sign, evidence that we have passed from death because of our sin to life because of faith in Jesus and him taking our sin upon himself, dying and rising again on the third day that if we would confess and believe in him, we would be given eternal life. One of the evidences that we have believed in Jesus, received Jesus, is that we love one another. How are you doing in loving one another? What would be a tangible next step to loving someone else? Some of you are incredible at this, thank you. What a great model you are to me. But what's the next step for each of us? To show love, tangible love, commitment love, even costly love to one another and to an unbelieving world that desperately needs to know 
that we have been redeemed and that Jesus is willing to redeem all who by faith receive him as Savior. Make him Lord. John says, love one another. A new command, an intensified command I give to you that you love one another just as Christ has loved you. May that be true in my life. May it be true in yours. Let's pray. Father God, uh, help us to be individuals who demonstrate the love of Christ to sisters and brothers in Christ, to others outside of the family of Christ, because we care and we love, and we so desperately want them to see Jesus reflected in us to be the hands, the feet, the mouth of Jesus, the heart of Jesus. Father, empower us by our spirit. And as some of us are harboring hatred and vitriol and bitterness, forgive us. Cleanse us. Empower us by your spirit to turn from such anger to love. May they know we are Christians, Lord, by our love, by our love. May they know we are Christians by our love. It's in the name of your loving son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.